You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. Exciting times. Pastor candidate right around the corner. Wow. That's so awesome. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm Tom, and uh, I've had the chance to be interim pastor here for the last year, and I get the chance to bring God's word to you this morning. And we're in this series on the Psalms of Ascent. And if you've never heard of those, they were, uh, there are 15 Psalms, 120 through 134, that... Uh, were sung or chanted by the Hebrew pilgrims. Not This wasn't their exclusive use, but they were used. Uh, when they would journey to Jerusalem three times a year for the, the big festivals, the big feasts and, and commemorating memorial celebrations. And they would chant them on the way, and they were called ascents because topographically Jerusalem sits at the heights of uh, Palestine. So to get there, you're climbing. And they provide a, a solid and basic framework for uh, living a God-word life, a God-directed life, a Christ-following life. A, they really form a, a bulwark uh, and a simple frame for Christian discipleship. And they, uh, 120 through 126 that we've covered uh, or through 25 that we've covered thus far, and this seventh one, 126, that we'll, they began with the, the simple notion of how, how do we connect with God by turning away, we repent and move towards God. We turn from our old ways, we turn from the conventional wisdom of the world, we, can, we turn away from condemnation and fear and shame, and we step towards God. 121 reminds us to remember God's ways, not to get our eyes off on the the wisdom of the dominant culture, but to keep our eyes on him and to keep going because it's a long journey. It's just not a few steps or a sprint from wherever they were uh, to Jerusalem or from where we are to our ultimate uh, reward in 122 to to walk together because it's a tough journey and if you if you want to run fast run alone if you want to run far run together say the Messiah and it's echoed in Psalm 122 and then 123 uh, reminds us to look to God and then it, it tempers our posture to be a merciful servant. And yep, to keep going, that dominant theme, 124, remember he's with you no matter what and keep going. 125, don't stop, remember he's with you no matter what. And now in 126, we're sort of reminded as to why and the source of real, the fuel for the journey, the joy that there is to be found in a Godward life. And let's dig into the secret of uh, joy. Laughter, it is said, is the best medicine. Uh, And there's lots of evidence that laughter does a whole lot of good for we human beings. It's been proven to reduce pain. It allows us to tolerate discomfort. It increases job performance. It connects people emotionally, and it improves the flow of oxygen in the blood, the heart, and brain. I submit this to all of our medical students for further review and proof uh, at a later point. Uh, 
it, 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 they say it reduces blood sugar levels. It increases glucose tolerance in diabetics and non-diabetics alike. It improves job performance, especially if your work depends on creativity and solving complex problems. In intimate relationships, its role is vastly underestimated. It, it's been proven to be the glue in many good solid marriages because it synchronizes the brains of the speaker and the listener so that they're emotionally attuned. So begins a recent article I read in that definitive authority, Psychology uh, Today. Google it. It's pretty interesting. Uh, the American Picture Association of American, otherwise known as the MPAA, uh, supports Get this, that the American film and television industry supports 2.6 million jobs in our country, paying out an estimated $177 billion in total wages. Do the dividing. Yeah, you might want to make a career change. And comprises over 93,000 separate businesses and estimated that between one-third and one-half of them are towards comedic enterprises towards the kind of things that provide amusement and lighthearted and laughter. In fact, according to a report by Reuters, even bigger than that is the gaming industry. And that's not gambling, that's like video games, and I see a few nodding heads of approval. Uh, <clears throat> over all other forms of entertainment, last year the gaming industry produced an estimated $116 billion in revenue, beating out TV and TV streaming services, measly $105 billion. So, Tom, what's the point? Well, clearly, as a society, we are wanting so desperately to laugh. And, yes, euphemistically, to be, to be happy. And if not, then to be distracted or entertained or amused. It's not surprising that Hollywood's golden age of the epic great movies, most authorities say, was during the Great Depression and World War II, when we desperately wanted, at least momentarily, to lay aside all of our troubles and to laugh, if only for a little while, in a cool, darkened theater. This psalm is filled with laughter, verse 2, and something even deeper that our souls desperately crave and I suggest need, and that is the three-letter word of joy in verses 2, 5, and 6. And this psalm is written to help people just like you and me to discover the secret of joy. Now, when the psalm refers, bless you, to joy, it doesn't mean the tendency of like some people's temperament uh, to be sunnier and cheerier and more lighthearted than other people. I'm looking at you, Phil. Uh, there simply are people, you know, who bounce out of bed in the morning singing. These people seem to be, you know, for some reason, just more upbeat than others because, well, I guess they're, they're wired that way. However, joy is not a, a matter of temperament. Nor is this the joy about faking it till you're making it. Nor is it imposing joy on someone else uh, who at the moment, you know, just discovered that they're, you know, 
their job has just been eliminated. Well, rejoice in the Lord always, brother. Uh, to which you might reply, let me punch you in the throat and see just how much rejoicing uh, you do. Now, it's, this joy is not a matter of temperament, your natural predisposition, or of manufactured mood, of faking it, or light momentary entertainment or distraction, which many times is sought as an end in itself. Instead, friends, this joy is the result of something else, something very, very real. It's the result of being restored by God to God and to each other. Not happy because about your genetics or your, you know, bank book or credit rating or entertaining, but joyful because of what God has done for you. This joy is from objective, real, God-given restoration. And those who have this joy, verse 1 says, are like those who dream. In the ancient world, when it refers to dreams, my wife and I were talking about dreams this morning. When it refers to dreams, by the way, they say if you, if you kind of are aware that you dream, but you can't remember what your dream was, that's sort of evidence that you slept really good. And when you really can remember what they are, oftentimes you, you, know, you didn't get the sleep and it, it sticks there. It doesn't get washed out by all the sleepy juice in your brain that you talk to one of the medical students or Joe or somebody, they'll explain it to you. Uh, but when the psalmist here is talking about dream, it's, it's the literal dream of a sleep, not daydreaming. And when the psalmist says it was like dreaming, he's comparing it to a really great dream. And he's saying that this joy is so good that when you experience, you think, I must be dreaming. It's like that. That's the joy that this psalm is talking about. So throw away all of your ideas that joy is found in something apart from God and the redemption he offers. Or that God is some kind of gloomy, negative, critical sort of cosmic ruler who might smite you if you laugh out loud. Now this psalm first describes this amazing dream, and then second, it tells us how that dream comes true in our life. So let's dig in. First of all, the amazing dream. First three verses. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now, Zion, remember, uh, stands for the whole story of God's people, not just a, a geographical uh, space. Uh, and it, it culminates not only in the, the, the ark from that original Zion, that place, to a heavenly Zion being let down uh, from heaven, that is when God for, brought, people, brought his people back and where uh, 
from where they should have been all along and sets in the future then everything right and restores all things. And notice there's a parallel between verses 1 and 4. Verse 1 says, when the Lord restored, and verse 4 says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. So the first part of the psalm is the dream, what happened when God restored. And the second part of the psalm is how to live the dream, asking God to restore your fortunes. And we'll unpack that a little bit more. Because fortune here doesn't mean uh, the fortune of like wheel of fortune or luck or chance. It's not, you know, winning the lottery or, you know, hey, I've been down on my luck and finally I've gotten my lucky break. The word fortune here, and it's, it's, it's amazing Hebrew construct, and this is really where English falls short because it mirrors this fortune, this word mirrors the word restore. So when the Lord restores the futures of Zion, the fortunes of Zion, verse 1, means something like, but it just doesn't make sense in English, but bear with me, when God restored us to a restored situation, when brought back out of bondage from Egypt, right, to where we should have been all along, yet having never been far from him, but far from where he wanted us to be. We find the same in verse 4, which is parallel. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, meaning restore us to this restored situation, O Lord. And this is important because people think in our culture that you're living the dream. I mean, what's living the dream? You're able to buy a boat or a vacation home or a swanky new wardrobe at Bedowers. I'm not, no shade there. That's a good thing, I suppose. But it's not talking about having stuff. Because stuff can never bring us joy. Joy is not living well or looking good. Those, those things are, are blessings. Joy is about, in this context, and it ultimately, it's all about having been and being and will be restored God's perfect will. That is brought back to who you as an individual and we as a society who you were always designed and meant to be. And if joy is being restored to God, restored to who we are supposed to be, who his people can be, what then is that being restored like? It's all kind of squishy, and I think that's why the, the psalmist writes it down, is we were like those who dream. What sort of dream? It's described right here, verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter. See that laughter clearly in your mind, hear it in your head? And it's not, you know, LOL. It's not ha, ha, ha. It, it, it's, it's not a chortle or a giggle or a cur courtesy laugh. Let's demonstrate a courtesy laugh. It's not a courtesy laugh. See, yeah, you're experienced, aren't you? Um, this is, now this is uncontrollable milk coming out of your nose, side-splitting, embarrassing, snorting kind of laughter. Our, laugh, our mouth was filled 
with laughter. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but hang on, there's a point. Mouth wide open and filled with laughter. Open mouth, teeth showing, decorum shattering, life laughter is how the psalm describes the dream. With tears rolling down your face, laughing out loud together, not just my own, but God's people together engaged in wide open mouth laughter. And the point here is this joy fills you and your mouth so that there's no room for anything else in your mouth. And our tongues, inferred, was filled with shouts of joy. Some versions translate the word here that the ESV translated as shouts, refers to, uh, translated as songs of joy. But if it's singing, then you know, down, you know that you know down deep in your knower, this is talking about Grant Stucka kind of loud singing. Am I right? Love others, hug hard, sing loud. And this is the instinctive loud that comes out of you. If you were an Iowa fan, it was loud. And you score a touchdown, you hit a home run, you get straight A's, you close the deal. The instinctive loud. And there's still more to the description of the dream. Look, then they said among the nations, verse 2, the Lord has done great things for them. When they started laughing out loud, really loud, and shouting songs of joy, then everyone else around them looked and said, give me some of that. You know, people that really know God through his son, Jesus Christ, seldom have to tell you that. Am I right? There's evidence. And the people of God here agreed with the verdict, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And I don't think there's anybody who, if they truly understand what's being said here, as squishy as this language is, would not want to be part of the dream that it describes. Whatever your temperament, whatever your situation, don't you desire to have a constant source of joy that is so amazing, so obvious, that people around you say, I want what you have. The dream is described as God's restoring his people, which causes then contagious laughter, singing, and joy. Okay, that's the amazing dream. dream, dream. Here's... The amazing dream comes true in the second half of the psalm. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Verses 4 to 6 give us a pretty clear model of praying for the dream to come true, and then a glimpse of what it's like when the dream 
really does come true. It begins with restore our fortunes, O Lord, verse 4. It mirrors the description that runs through verses 1 to 3, fortunes restored. The first half describes the dream, and in the second half, the writer begins to model being restored, living that dream. Being restored, almost said being destroyed, that wouldn't have worked. Being restored is incredible contrast, like streams in the Negev, streams in the dead, the, the desert. Negev is the parched, dry, hot, arid, southern wastelands of Palestine. Like streams in that desert contrasts water to an arid land. We find another contrast. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him, verses 5 and 6. So tear, water, desert, tears, joy. Verses 4 to 6, model, asking God to restore his people. And they tell us that God's restoration contrasts water flowing in a desert and shouting with joy after mourning and grief. Helps sort of cement this in our, in our hearts today uh, and to, about this, this contrast. Work with me through an acronym that I'm borrowing from, from Josh Moody's commentary on uh, these psalms. And, and the acronym is simply the word happy, H-A-P-P-Y. Because if you want joy, it begins with H, humility. To say, restore, O Lord, requires the humility to admit that you need restoring. Jesus said, blessed are the poor or happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hunger, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The psalm is saying that restoration begins with having the humility to ask for it. H, humility. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Lift you up. So it requires humility, H. A, advice. Notice it says our, verse 4. Not my fortunes, our fortunes. The, trip, the pilgrim is traveling in community. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to be in church on Sunday. That's why we need a small group. We need each other. Because, friends, there is a very common medical condition. I'm not a doctor, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, right? But there's, a, there's something that I've encountered, I've experienced, and I meet everywhere I go, and it's called clinical depression. Myself, and I've known people, godly people, who've been clinically depressed. And this isn't because... They're sinning. 
It's not God's judgment upon them, not because they're not praying enough or trying enough, not, but it is because of a complex and common medical condition called clinical depression. Listen, if you've felt perpetually sad for way too long and just can't seem to get past it, and you talk to somebody who cares about you and knows you well, and they say, maybe you should go see someone about this. Here's my advice. Just do that. You have nothing to lose but your pride. And this is different from being, you know, an Eeyore personality type or a glass half empty type. No, it's not about personality. And look, if, if I'm talking about or to you, please talk to me afterwards or text me. Humility advice. Also, we are purpose-built to not carry our burdens all by ourselves. I'm so grateful for the healthy small group structure in this church and how you've demonstrated being able to bear each other's burdens. If you need help with anything, never be afraid to ask. Some things you can't be helped if people don't know. So, finding this joy, according to the scripture, begins in humility, it couples with advice, and then P, perspective. There is a perspective in this contrast. Negeb, streams flowing through a desert, tears leading to joy. So far in these Psalms of Ascent, we've been through so much of the dark side of the emotions and asking for help. Now we're coming to the bright side of the emotions, joy, happiness. And incidentally, the word joy in Hebrew is alternatively translated glee, happiness, delight, and hope. A big piece of being happy, a big piece of being content, a big piece of being optimistic, a big piece of joy is having something to look forward to. And the perspective here is the whole storyline of the Bible and what we have to look forward to. What we're really talking about right here in this passage is the gospel. That this is not merely a contrast for you know, cathartic purpose, you know, weeping and then rejoicing. It's saying because of who God is, because of what the gospel is, if you turn to God, he will restore you. The gospel is that God has come to rescue us in the person of Jesus Christ. Part of experiencing true joy is keeping that perspective in your perspective. 
It's working hard at whatever is, as Paul wrote in Philippians 4, noble and true and thinking about those things. The point of Paul is not just abstractly thinking about the future or you know just concentrating on a on a beautiful flower you know when you're when you're really down in the dumps although sometimes that could be very helpful it's looking at the flower or thinking about this future and asking what does god tell me about his creation and about the future he has for me in this thought it's asking When you hear bad news, what does that tell me about the fallen world in which we live? How glad does it make me that God is going to make all things new? He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and that he is with me, and he will take me through this, and even I will be a part of what he is renewing and what will have been renewed perspective. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his great book, Spiritual Depression, says this, quote, the trouble with Christians is that they listen to themselves when, in fact, they should be talking to themselves. Here's what he means. Talking to yourself, that is, preaching the gospel to yourself. Why be thou downcast, O my soul? Speaking the truth to yourself. And if you don't know where to begin and you find yourself facing something that's really dragging you down, here's what you do. And this isn't a magic formula. The Bible isn't uh, a, a totem. It isn't an amulet. It isn't a book of spells. It's the truth of God revealed through his servants. Here's a great place to start. Every morning and every evening, speak to yourself. Get your Bible out and read to yourself out loud. Don't skim through it. Don't listen to it recorded. You yourself read out loud so your your eye gate gets it and your ear gate hears it. Read Romans 8 out loud to yourself every day. Remind yourself there's no way that you can be condemned. Remind yourself that there's nothing that can ever separate you from God. Preach the gospel to yourself is what this is suggesting to us. To help maintain perspective. Okay, humility, advice, perspective, and the second P, prayer. Because this is a prayer. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. My experience and my observation with many, many people is that when it comes to prayer, most of us simply need to slow down at some point in our routine. My typical operating speed is about, you know, 30,000 RPMs. And I've I've hence learned that I think God's operating speed is down somewhere around 300 RPMs. And how do I slow down and connect? And I'm not talking about Bible study with a group. That's, That's very good. Connecting with your small group, that's very important. Leading your family in a time of reflection, devotion, that's very important, but I'm talking about you on your knees using the most valuable resource you have or your, or your favorite place or chair with your Bible open and 
with no one around, connecting with God in prayer and asking him, Lord, would you restore my joy? That's the model we're given. So humility, advice, perspective, prayer, and lastly, why you? To be truly joyful has a big piece to do with being restored to who you were designed to be. And I mean beyond anything, any, you know, new agey kind of things about, you know, being true to yourself and all that. There's some wisdom in that. Being your true self. It's, it's, it is restoration. Coming back to the way you were meant to be as God designed you. And he designed you to be God-centered and God-connected. And only the gospel enables you to become the you that you were meant to be, the new creation. It's to be reconciled to God, to be in Christ and Christ in you, to have your sins removed and his righteousness made yours as you are one with him. This restoration happens only when a human being turns to, back to Psalm 120, turns to God through his son Jesus Christ. And it happens with every step a little bit more restoration, a little bit more spiritual intimacy, a little bit more yielded, a little bit more, a little bit closer, a step at a time. Humility, advice, perspective, prayer, and you. So the story goes, Sherlock Holmes and his faithful assistant, Dr. Watson, were out camping one evening. And Holmes woke up in the middle of the night, and he woke up Watson and pointed at the stars. And Watson blinked the sleep out of his eyes as Holmes asked him, what do you deduce? Watson said, well, astronomically, I deduce there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I deduce that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Meteorologically, I deduce that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What about you, Holmes? What do you deduce? Watson, Holmes replied slowly, I deduce that someone has stolen our tent. You see, joy, <clears throat> it's both complex and really very simple. I've been reading quite a lot lately about the early immigrants who eventually formed our society and its subsequent country, nation. One group who was rather influential at the beginning that we tend to remember at Thanksgiving uh, were the Puritan pilgrims, you know, big hats, buckle shoes, who were typically characterized as dour and uptight, burning witches at the stake and soiling scarlet letters on people and enforcing rigid moral laws, you know, a real downer bunch that really need this sermon about joy. And it turns out to be largely a puritanical myth. Because the wider, more popular contemporary descriptions of the day 
are in fact about a truly happy and truly joy-filled people. We tend to think happiness as trite and that somehow the more miserable we are, the more profound we can be and somehow closer to God, but nothing could really be further from the truth. God's ultimate destiny for those who believe is not miserable moralism, but a joyful seriousness, a, a, a thrill that re reverberates with the truth. God will be with them as their God. And at the back of the book, in Revelation 29, it promises he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. For those who put their trust in God, that is their destiny, one filled with opened mouth, laughing joy. Do you want this joy? Do you have this joy? Remember your redemption, and remember another redemption is coming. The travelers to Jerusalem, when they chanted these psalms, did. And when it flagged, when their joy flagged, they reminded themselves of their redemption, and it kept them going. It reminded themselves of the redemption from Egypt and the eventual redemption they will ultimately experience today. And today. The source of true joy Christ's redeeming us from sin and setting things right in our hearts gives us the hope to join him in setting things right in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our cities, in our society, and in our world. It's the only hope this planet has. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.